0: Thank you for choosing to listen to this episode today. Before we begin, I just wanted to let you know that recently Talks Talk changed its name to Talks Now. So during this episode, at multiple points, you'll hear us refer to Talks Talk and the website Talks Talk. But you can check out all that great content at Talks T O X N O W dot O R G, and follow us at our Twitter feed at TalksNow. So, same great people, same great content, just a slightly different name. Thanks for listening. We'll continue with the episode now. Hello, and welcome to another exciting edition of Tox Talk. I'm Matt Zuckerman, fellow at the UMass Division of Toxicology. And today, I wanted to talk about something in the news. I don't know if many of our listeners have seen this, but there's been a huge outbreak of methanol poisoning in Libya. And it's been in the news recently, but to those of us who watch the news or are familiar with methanol poisoning, it's not an isolated case. Throughout the last 50 years, there have been outbreaks of methanol poisoning in Cambodia, Estonia, Turkey... India and even the United States. And so it's a, I think someone once said that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And, and there are current themes that we see again and again in these outbreaks of methanol poisoning. And just from a toxicology perspective, it's a great opportunity to talk about volatile alcohols in general, uh, methanol, ethylene glycol, isopropyl, and to try and get a better sense for their toxicity and diagnosis and treatment. So we wanted to take advantage of this tragic sort of outbreak, to talk to you about methanol poisoning. Toxtalk is a production of the UMass Division of Toxicology and Department of Emergency Medicine. And you can find out more on our website at toxtalk, T-O-X-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G, or contact us, email us with any questions, or if you see any interesting tox news that you want us to cover, you can email us at toxtalk at toxtalk or follow us on our Twitter feed or Facebook page, and here we go with our discussion of the Libyan methanol poisoning outbreak. Hi, I'm Matt Zuckerman and welcome to another edition of Talks Talk. I have a few esteemed toxicologists with me.
1: Hello everyone. I'm Christina Hernan. I'm an attending toxicologist here at University of Massachusetts Medical
2: School. Hi, my name is Richard Church. I'm also an attending physician here at UMass and a
3: clinical toxicologist. And I'm Mark Nevin. I'm one of the first-year fellows here
0: at UMass. And on today's show, I wanted to talk about something that's been in the news lately. I don't know if anyone's reading the news, but there's been a lot going on in Libya. No, no, not what you're thinking. There's actually a methanol outbreak that started around the 12th of March in the, um, the northwestern part of Tripoli and at this point the numbers are still changing but it looks like between eight hundred to a thousand patients have been admitted to hospitals with symptoms of methanol toxicity more than ninety fatalities have been counted and so this is kind of a major national disaster that's that's evoking an international response toxicologists from the united states and from other countries have stepped in to uh, volunteer and help out doctors without borders is involved with it and doctors from around the world are sending antidote, and I think this is an exciting time to talk about something that we actually do see with some regularity, which is poisoning by toxic alcohols. Rich, I understand you have some background with this.
2: Um, I do have some background with it. Uh, When I was uh, working as a fellow here at UMass, I had done some extensive kind of back research into the uh, toxicity of toxic alcohols, and actually had put together a review paper regarding those. Uh, at the time, I had covered methanol, ethylene glycol, as well as isopropyl alcohol. So when this came into the news, obviously I was keenly interested because I uh, still had some uh, pretty significant memories of a lot of the papers that I had written from some of uh, our esteemed colleagues from around the world regarding the management and treatment of uh, methanol
0: intoxication. Papers that you had written or papers that you had read? Papers that I had read. Although you did write an esteemed review. And so before we dive into kind of like the international application and everything, I th- I love this field of toxicology, like the discussion of toxic alcohols, because I feel like it, it's, it's out there, it's common, and there are a lot of people that don't actually understand the distinction as to what makes a toxic alcohol and the difference between them, because you just rattled off several toxic alcohols, and some people just group them all together, but they have real differences in terms of their presentation and side effects. Do you agree, Mark?
3: Yeah, I mean, ethylene glycol causing renal failure versus... The classic blindness associated with methanol poisoning, right
0: And does anyone here really care about isopropyl?
3: Not as much as the others.
2: No, it's still something that we definitely see with regularity, especially in the uh, alcohol abuse uh, population, but it's not nearly as concerning as some of the other agents that people get in uh, get a hold
0: of. Yeah, I remember I always used to see a guy who would get his sort of benefits check, go on a cocaine bender, get really drunk, and then when he ran out of money, he couldn't afford to buy alcohol, so he would buy rubbing alcohol, which is one of the big sources of isopropyl alcohol, and drink it and get really drunk. The other key point to remember is that all of these alcohols will make you slightly drunk on some level. And so with isopropyl, he would drink it. Isopropyl gets metabolized uh, to uh, acetone and really just causes a severe gastritis, often a hemorrhagic gastritis in your stomach and gives you an upset tummy and makes you vomit, but does not get metabolized to some of the toxic products that we are going to talk about. And thus, the big key for residents and med students that are listening to this is that isopropyl alcohol will cause an osmolar gap, but not an anion gap. But So why is the methanol bad? Well, primarily the methanol is bad because
2: it has a toxic metabolite, that being formic acid or formate, and it's that downstream metabolite that the body can only get rid of to a certain extent. A lot of it is limited by downstream metabolic processes that get overwhelmed very quickly. And so it's up to us as physicians and toxicologists to recognize the signs and symptoms of of that exposure and to provide the necessary means for people to get rid of the toxic metabolite. Uh, The same goes for ethylene glycol. As Matt explained, you know, there's really no downstream toxic metabolite for isopropanol. It's just acetone, and your body can get rid of acetone on its own without any uh, deleterious sequelae. So that's the big reason why we get concerned about
0: other alcohols as opposed to things like isopropanol and ethanol. Okay, and so just to clarify for some people, so you talked that isopropyl gets metabolized via alcohol dehydrogenase and other enzymes to acetone, and that ethylene glycol gets metabolized also via alcohol dehydrogenase, ultimately to...
2: Glycolic acid becomes the the last downstream uh, toxic metabolite, right.
0: and that mainly their, and that causes mainly renal failure because of crystals in the kidney.
1: So after you metabolize the ethylene glycol by alcohol dehydrogenase, it goes to glycoaldehyde, and then glyoxylate. It is the glycolic acid that is actually the biggest contributor to the metabolic acidosis, but that is metabolized further to oxalic acid, which is the same thing as oxalate. And oxalate in the body is crystallized with calcium to form calcium oxalate, and that is deposited in the kidneys, leading to destruction just on a cellular level from crystallized, damaging crystals damaging the structures. Um, there's also some idea that the actual metabolism of oxalate within the kidneys may contribute to damage there as well. So renal failure is the, one of the major manifestations of ethylene glycol toxicity.
0: And then also, I think we've talked about the artifactual rise in creatinine that we see on some of our assays in the presence of is it isopropyl? What did
1: Isopropyl falsely elevates creatinine based off of the Jaffe reaction that they use within the lab in order to calculate creatinine, and it basically just messes up the lab value. So when you see that increase, people may uh, initially feel that, oh my goodness, it could be ethylene glycol, but if you look at it more closely, you realize that there's no big anion gap acidosis going on, which very quickly should lead you away from an isopropanol or isopropyl alcohol ingestion, which really is manifested by the hemorrhagic gastritis or enteritis that Dr. Zuckerman mentioned.
0: Upset tummy, severe upset tummy. Although the the cocaine that that gentleman was using was probably also bad for him. And then, so we talked about the metabolites, ethylene glycol. And then methanol, though, gets metabolized uh, to different toxic products, I believe,
2: Right, so methanol undergoes the same sequential metabolic processes as the other toxic alcohols. So initially, it encounters alcohol dehydrogenase, which is um, the primary enzyme, and it oxidates methanol to formaldehyde, and then you run into aldehyde dehydrogenase, which then uh, creates the downstream toxic metabolite, which is the formate or formic acid. And it's after that that you, the, the formic acid can uh, encounter folate through tetrahydrofolate um, and uh, then get broken down to carbon dioxide and water. As we mentioned kind of earlier, the, the humans and primates have a very limited amount of folate in their system and it gets overwhelmed very, very quickly. So when we sort of start discussing management of this, one of the things that we add to management is actually giving folate or actually folinic acid.
0: And I think it's important to note that the same process actually happens to everyone's favorite alcohol, or favorite, guys, toxic alcohol in a way, which is ethanol, um, which isn't technically a toxic alcohol, though it does seem to have a lot of morbidity and mortality. But ethanol gets metabolized via alcohol dehydrogenase, and uh, and then eventually uh, aldehyde dehydrogenase. And just that fun trivia: if anyone has a friend, often of the Asian persuasion, who sometimes turns red when they drink a drink of uh, ethanol, that's often because they do have alcohol dehydrogenase, but they don't have aldehyde. They don't have high functional levels of aldehyde dehydrogenase. And so that intermediate metabolite gives them that flushing and that strange feeling. And I'm sure that there's some pharmaceutical company somewhere working on supplemental aldehyde dehydrogenase for that. But all of these alcohols essentially undergo metabolism via the same set of enzymes, but to different products. And, And that actually, that overlap in the metabolism of ethanol and uh, methanol and ethylene glycol, I think, leads us to uh, some of the treatment modalities that have been used in the past.
1: I want to say just one more thing about the administrating folate or folinic acid is what we typically would administer. Also known as leucovorin. the dose is one milligram per kilogram up to a maximum dose of 50 milligrams. And um, of note, there, are, there is the availability of stereospecific leucovorin called levolucavorin. And if that is what you have at your facility, you should be using it at half the dose that you would otherwise give of folinic acid.
0: Okay. And that makes sense because typically if you have, a I guess, a racemic mixture, then about half of it might be one and about half might be the other. So if you give a pure, pure form, then you can give half the dose. Brilliant. Isn't it great how that works out? It's perfect. And I'm sure it's three times the cost.
1: It probably is. Maybe four.
0: Maybe four. For half the med. <laughs> for half the med. Well, that's, uh, that's like the albuterol or acemic versus Zopanex. I'm not a believer. I, I don't think that anyone is a believer, except for some parents who know their children very well, and they swear that the Zopanex doesn't make their kid all agitated and angry.
1: That I'm willing to believe.
0: Okay. And just some fun sources. So we know that isopropyl often comes from rubbing alcohol... Where are people getting methanol and ethylene glycol from if they're not Libyan? The garage. And anything you can
2: find in your garage. <laughs> Paint, gas line
0: antifreeze, canned heat, also called Sterno. Sterno, yes. Um, and actually, some Sterno cans also have 2, 3-diethylene uh, glycol. Correct.
2: But the big one is going to be windshield washer fluid, which is in almost everybody's garage.
0: And it's uh, incredibly cheap and easy to get a hold of.
1: And tire
0: cleaner. And oftentimes these are in these substances because they are solvents and so they either help to dissolve agents that normally wouldn't dissolve in water or by diluting out the water they can decrease the freezing point and thus your windshield wiper fluid doesn't freeze when it gets cold.
1: And sometimes you can actually encounter these toxic alcohols as metabolites of other substances for example, uh, you know, a very easily purchased nail polish remover from a local department store may contain methyl acetate, which is metabolized to methanol. Although it's definitely true that it's metabolized to methanol, I just haven't seen that be clinical clinically relevant yet, although I, it seems like it could be possible.
2: I guess the source that we're most interested in with what's going on in Tripoli would be this concern of ethanol, which is being adulterated with methanol versus the creation of ethanol through the fermentation of fruits and stuff like that, like what they've been using in Tripoli in tends to be things like figs and grapes and stuff like that. You do get a very small amount of methanol that gets produced that way. However, when people are trying to make backyard booze, they would add methanol to increase the potency of the alcoholic content, obviously with the hopes of not causing the downstream side effects such as optic disc edema and severe brain injury and death.
1: So it's an adulteration? They're like going to the hardware store to get their wood alcohol and adding it to make it cheaper and more powerful?
0: Probably. At this point in time, I think that's what everyone suspects, because what Rich was saying is you actually do get some methanol oftentimes when you attempt distillation and fermentation and creation of ethanol, but It's usually a smaller amount, it's usually towards the beginning, and so this is more likely an adulteration. The other time when you will see um, purposeful adulteration, aside from people who are trying to increase the potency of something and thus sell more of it, was uh, during prohibition. And then ethanol was out there for other uses, and so they would purposely denature it and add uh, other toxic substances to it, such as methanol, to discourage people from drinking it. Tragically, that didn't always happen, and then people would drink denatured alcohols. Denatured alcohols being a nice way of saying poisoned alcohol. And then there's the population that will just buy pre-made denatured
2: alcohol and then sell it as alcohol because it's legal in places where you're not allowed to buy regular ethanol, and it's cheap. And then it
0: gets resold as an alcohol product, but it happens to be poisoned with methanol. And I think that's one of the issues here, too. I think, I mean, you can get legitimate ethanol in Libya. However, because of suppliers and resources and social norms, it can be very expensive. And so this is a uh, cheaper alternative. And it's
2: probably proving very difficult for authorities to figure out exactly what was the source because nobody or or there's a limited amount of people in this country that are going to want to speak up about exactly where they got the alcohol because a lot of people don't want to say because it's not allowed for religious reasons or social norms or et cetera.
1: You know, the world has seen large-scale, massive epidemic methanol poisoning before associated with moonshine. For example, in Norway around 2004-2005, they had a few hundred cases of methanol poisoning resulting from moonshine ingestion. But what's going on in Libya right now, the world has never seen this scale of an epidemic methanol poisoning before related to maybe moonshine, intentional adulteration, or faulty fermentation and distillation. Either way, it's going to be compounded by what Dr. Church just said, that the reluctance to admit that someone has ingested alcohol in a culture that discourages it is going to discourage patients from presenting themselves, saying that they have a problem, and so far as being reported as discouraging families from bringing their family members to care and instead seeing it as some kind of punishment or something to be accepted as is for the behavior that caused it in the first place.
2: And this is exactly what they're running into, is that they feel that the numbers that they're reporting are definitely on the lower end. There have been 90 to 100 deaths but they don't know how many true deaths there have been for people that didn't have access to care or didn't seek care because of societal reasons. In addition to the deaths, the exposure amount has been over 1,000 that have been reported to be exposed. However, the true number, who knows what the true number is, because they they may never choose to seek care
0: because of how it's going to look at like
1: most poisoning epidemiology, it's underreported. Right.
0: Yes. And in this particular case, it's not like, you know, a bad batch of raspberries or an adverse chemical reaction from an industrial plant. There is no lot number to go to try to trace back on this. There is no way to go back and look at this. So realistically, bottles that people have in their cabinets, I mean, they're going to be seeing continued exposure to this probably for years because it's not like this is a brand name liquor that's going to have a recall.
1: I wonder to what extent it would be getting publicized in Libya. I'm just curious. That's sort of a combination of television news reporting and cultural norms. And I don't know if you would have a public service announcement go out and say, don't drink the alcohol that you don't have in your house. But I feel like there are probably people that know a lot more about the culture and and news there that would be able to give us a sense of what you could actually do in order to inform the public.
0: So some of the discussion talks about how it's not a common poisoning in Libya, and so the healthcare personnel have been essentially treating something that they don't see all that commonly with uh, supplies that they don't have a lot of. And I think when we see an isolated methanol toxicity patient in the U.S., it's relatively straightforward to treat. And we'll talk about some of the management strategies, but once you start to increase the N, once you start to increase the patients, it really does become a national disaster. Where surge capacity and ability to have both antidote and treatment interventions uh, becomes a problem. And actually, I'm I'm talking around this. Let's talk about how you treat methanol poisoning. So, uh, Dr.
1: Nevin, how do you treat methanol poisoning?
3: Typically, with fomepizole, which was came to market a decade or so ago, I think. Because uh, in the past, it was always treated with ethanol, trying to maintain a level above a hundred. And the basic idea of it is you're blocking the production of the toxic metabolite. So by blocking the metabolism of methanol, you allow it to be eliminated by other means. So in the case of methanol, it just gets blown off with respiration, okay. and you don't build up formic acid.
0: You just said a ton of stuff that every toxicologist can roll off quickly, but just to review. So essentially, we talked about how all these alcohols are metabolized by the same enzymes, And so, and we'll see this sometimes, a drunk person who's drunk on ethanol and has drunk methanol, the alcohol dehydrogenase can only metabolize so much product so fast. And so sometimes what they found in the past was ethanol would outcompete the methanol. And so if you maintained an elevated ethanol level, you wouldn't get that toxic metabolite. And what we found, though, is keeping everyone drunk is hard. I have myself administered IV ethanol in in one case, and... um, the problem is ethanol induces its own metabolism, and it causes CNS depression, and electrolyte disturbances, and, and so using liver it... liver
1: damage, and hypoglycemia, and the rowdy patient, and lots of problems. Yes,
0: and so unless you're out in the bush somewhere, you typically don't treat these poisonings with ethanol. Although if you are out in the bush somewhere...
1: Or in a country that doesn't have the antidote...
0: Yes, get drunk. But then, big pharma has come up with a better solution. for mepazole essentially being a similar competitive inhibitor with alcohol dehydrogenase, without the nasty side effect of getting you drunk.
2: And just a little bit of back information regarding the ethanol use as a as a, an antidote. There was a lot of data that, that initially had shown that you needed to maintain a blood alcohol level of like a hundred in order to keep in, in order to outcompete the enzyme. Um, hundred milligrams per deciliter. hundred milligrams per deciliter. Correct. However, there was there had been some, some newer research that had shown that blood alcohol level actually only needed to be approximately 40 milligrams per deciliter because ethanol outcompetes things like uh, methanol, about 15 to 1 for this enzyme. So it didn't need to be that high. So therefore, your patients potentially didn't need to be that drunk, that rowdy, that hypoglycemic. However, it is still a drip that needed to be maintained in an ICU setting, therefore You're talking about increased cost of care for these folks when you could administer something like vomepazole, which is BID dosing. It doesn't uh, require any kind of titration, and it doesn't require an ICU admission, and it's very safe, and it outcompetes the alcohol dehydrogenase enzyme 8,000 to 1.
1: And uh, no allergic reactions have ever been reported. Correct. And any adverse effects potentially reported tend to be mild, like some anxiety or feeling uncomfortable or a flushed feeling.
0: Yeah. And I feel like we, as toxicologists, have a low threshold for recommending fomepizole in suspected poisonings. Because, um, actually, so diagnosing these toxic alcohols, I guess I skipped that step, but when you have somebody where you suspect an exposure, there's typically uh, kind of a screening test and then there's more of a confirmatory test. So Mark, around here, when we suspect a methanol ingestion, what do we typically do?
3: Well, usually we're looking at the chemistry for an anion gap, and we're looking at a measured serum osm. So typically at the the beginning of a toxic alcohol exposure, they're going to have an elevated osm gap. And as that alcohol gets metabolized to an acid, it raises the anion gap. So we see the elevated
0: osm gap first and then the anion gap later on right and um how do we calculate the calculated osms the uh, med student
3: for med student formula is two times your sodium concentration plus your bun divided by 2.8 plus your glucose divided by 18 and then plus any other additional measurable osms like ethanol so The uh, correction for ethanol is divided by 4.6.
0: And I feel like that's a big thing that comes up all the time. And it's important that uh, you check the chemistry and the osm and the ethanol on the same draw, because remember, glucose levels is the things that can change dramatically in just 20 minutes. And so very often we see people add a serum osm an hour later, but that calculation doesn't become, it's no. no longer true. So if you're going to check a serum osm, you have to redraw the chemistry and the ethanol so you can calculate the calculated osm. And then your lab, either via melting point depression or, um, I guess, vaporization elevation. So freezing point depression versus...
2: Freezing point depression is the way that you want it to be measured because if you use other methods, it can essentially burn off the alcohol too quickly, and you're going to get a falsely low
0: level. Yeah. So your lab will measure a measured osm, and then you just take the measured osm, subtract your calculated osm, and if you have a gap, and usually we say a gap is something greater than, you know, 15, then there's probably some unmeasured osm. That unmeasured osm is often a toxic alcohol if you have a suspected case. I also say that uremia and other things can contribute to this gap, but typically it's somebody that you suspect a toxic alcohol ingestion. And then in a lot of places, that's really what they have available to them immediately. And so based on that and the symptoms, they would decide whether or not to initiate treatment with femepazole. Mark, what do you do if you, what do we do here? Because We have one of the best
3: toxic labs in the country. Well, at UMass, we have a great laboratory where we can check levels of pretty much everything. But where I trained in Philly, we never had access to that. And where I worked in Detroit, we never had access to immediate methanol levels. So we would use the elevated osm gap to trigger a dose of fomepazole until we could get a level back later on.
0: Do they have fomepazole in Detroit?
3: (laughs) Well, usually everyone was super therapeutic in ethanol, so it wasn't really a big deal. I'm pretty sure everyone...
1: (laughs) has femepazole now, right? Everybody, yeah.
3: right? Yes, yeah.
2: yes. Yeah. I think everyone has Phomepazole. Well, and yeah. I think this this was a concern of ours because, you know, we are a large academic university setting, but we take a lot of calls from very small hospitals surrounding us. And I think initially there was some concern if some of these very small hospitals were even going to have any kind of a supply of Phomepazole. And if they did, it was literally a couple of vials. So oftentimes they were able to do, give an initial dose, but then they would have to transfer the patient to us for further management. One thing sort of to note for the astute sort of physician and toxicologist is that when we talk about measuring these osm gaps, everybody has a different osmolar gap. And your osm gap could be a negative osm gap when you are just walking around. And so if we measured an osm gap in somebody who has a baseline negative osm gap of 15, so minus 15, and then they ingest all this methanol, their osm gap could now be 10 so if you presume that they have an osm awesome gap starting at 0 to 10, that's only an osm awesome gap of plus 10, which doesn't seem that significant. But when you take into consideration that they may have started on the negative end of 0, their true awesome gap could be 25. So it's those large osm awesome gaps that we are seeing when we're measuring them here early on in presentation of 20 to 25 to 30 that you know you can't, explain away with even ethanol being on board, or or something else that you have to presume
0: there's a toxic alcohol. And Mark made a great point that as your body metabolizes the initial toxic alcohol to the toxic metabolite, the osm gap drops and the anion gap increases. So if you see a late presenter, if somebody comes in with end-stage symptoms, so they have snowy vision or they have altered CNS findings or seizures and you suspect methanol ingestion and they have a huge anion gap, well, maybe this is a missed methanol ingestion.
1: I think that's really important. Like we're, we're starting this discussion, like let's talk about toxic alcohols. And the reality is that people often show up and either are unable to disclose or unwilling to disclose or unaware of what they've been exposed to. And the presentation of an acidotic patient, an NIA gap acidosis, that you're trying to figure out what's going on that's where most of these cases start and I think it's actually the the more important thing is to kinda know when you should consider toxic alcohols so that when your story's not coming together whether it's a patient that you thought was like a typical elderly sepsis kinda picture and you start fluids and you start antibiotics and you're treating it appropriately and a few hours later you're like that's strange why are they getting Worse, what's going on? And then you kind of look at them, and you're like, wow, they're breathing really deeply and fast and with a high minute volume. What's that all about? You may not have already done labs like looking for serum osmolarity, calculating osmolar gap, looking at lactic acidosis, looking at the bicarb, figuring out if that minute volume is appropriate for the bicarb you're seeing. And it's that patient where you're kind of like, huh, I'm not sure that this is what I thought it was that's when it's time to ask yourself, could this be a toxic alcohol? And to work through the causes of anion gap acidosis using an acronym like MUDPILES, which obviously includes lactic acidosis, which takes in many, many other things. But getting to the point where you ask yourself, could this be a toxic alcohol? Maybe sending off toxic alcohol levels, uh, adding on the right serum, calculating gap. I think that's a really important skill is to be able to just have a hunch that something might be going on and move forward from there.
0: Yeah, and, and realistically, the only drawback to giving phomepazole to that patient, I think the only drawback I've ever thought of, of giving phomepazole is if you have a really drunk patient and you want to clear them, they will remain drunker longer because you have now blocked alcohol dehydrogenase and that ethanol will go a long way. And that's the other thing I'm surprised people haven't started doing is getting really drunk. Shh. Sorry. People. The
1: affinity for fomepazole is far greater than ethanol as a substrate for alcohol dehydrogenase for competitive inhibition. When you look at the structure of 4-methylpherazole compared to ethanol, you can see how it might be a good inhibitor of alcohol dehydrogenase.
0: All I'm saying is, if if that happens, a YouTube video would be appropriate.
2: Don't let your patients know.
0: Yes. And then, um, okay, but confirmatory testing, Mark, what do we do here? Because we have the best tox lab in the country. We get levels. Absolutely. So we get specific ethylene glycol, methanol, isopropyl levels. And you can't really order them individually, I found. I tried to get an ethylene glycol patient on somebody the other day just because they had renal failure and a huge gap. And the lab called three times asking, don't you want isopropyl levels? Don't you want ethanol levels? And yeah, I had to get them all. But they they came back pretty rapidly. And so we're able to um, initiate treatment based on levels. And I think historically, the level cutoff that we have picked for methanol is typically 20? 20 to 25. Okay. So we talked about phomepazole, which helps to block alcohol dehydrogenase. And then Mark brought up a good point. So typically, when you block alcohol dehydrogenase, how do you get rid of methanol? You breathe it off. Okay. At
1: about 1% or 2% per day. So I've been told.
0: What if you breathe faster? What if you just make them hyperventilate? Okay, three percent. Okay, I'm making this up. I know, yeah. That would be a great study, though. We made them nervous and tried to see if we could get them better quicker. Um, but just yeah, had them it, blow up a lot of balloons or something. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And then they blow off the methanol, but that's truly bizarre. I don't think most of us think. I think the only other thing that we breathe off that I know of is, is CO two um, as a, as a metabolic process. You guys actually, so senior toxicologists in the room, do you know of anything else that we rely on respiration to get rid of?
1: I'm going to guess that if your serum ethanol level was sky high, mm-hmm. that you would volatilize off ethanol
0: you do, through your
1: pulmonary capillaries right. as well.
0: Right, and that's partially... Anything
1: that will volatilize like that yeah. would make sense to me.
0: And that's partially the reason behind some of the breathalyzer tests and also why people who have sort of diabetic ketoacidosis will sometimes falsely trigger some of those tests. So yes, actually you're right. A lot of, a lot of alcohols you volatilize uh, via the respiratory tract.
1: But I wouldn't consider it a major route. Of right. elimination. Right. And if that's the major route of elimination for methanol then we're going to need another route for elimination. So charcoal? No, thanks. Charcoal is usually not a good idea just because the absorption of alcohols is so rapid, which everybody really knows if, if you have had ethanol, then the effects are certainly faster on an empty stomach than with food, but the effects are rapid. The onset of intoxication is rapid.
0: Okay. We're going to take a moment right here to allow Dr. Bird, come in. Yes, so we're taking over do- Steve Bird is here. Steve, do you want to um, introduce your? That is a that is a lovely tie dye shirt that you're wearing there. not Steve? Welcome, Steve. Do you want to introduce yourself?
4: Hi, hi everyone. Steve Bird. I'm the uh, program director at UMass for their residency, and as well as a talks person. And I've never ever owned a tie dye shirt. I'm proud to say. Never. Never owned a tie dye shirt. It awesome. doesn't really go with the. Um, the shoes I tend to wear.
0: We now know what we're getting you for Christmas this year. I know. I don't think you're allowed to work at Ben & Jerry's, ever. So, essentially, we've been talking about the Libyan... The Libyans! Does anyone else, by the way, does Back to the Future jump into anyone's head, like, five times going over this? Yes. I'm really sorry, but it's just that... Marty, it's the Libyans! Anyway, I'm dating myself right there. Kids, go rent it. It's a good movie. So, um... We talked about the Libyan methanol poisoning outbreak. We've talked about some of the toxic alcohols and toxic metabolites of them. We've talked about testing for them. We just talked about phenterazol and how charcoal won't really won't really do you much. And so now we were, Steve, do you have any alternative way of getting methanol out of someone if they are poisoned with methanol and you have effectively blocked the metabolism with phenterazol? I want the record to show that I have not prepped Steve for this question.
4: So, that's interesting because I actually was thinking of something else, and that is not how do you also get rid of methanol, but how do you get rid of formic acid, because I think that is the more interesting part of it. Ultimately, if you block the metabolism of methanol, it doesn't really matter if you enhance its elimination. Now, you may have to block the formation with 4MP or something else for a long time, But ultimately, as long as you're not forming toxic metabolites, it doesn't really matter. But I think it's more interesting for once you have a sick patient, because I suspect, I haven't been to Libya, but I suspect that the patients aren't coming in saying, I have ingested some methanol, my pH is normal, my bicarb is normal, I have no formic acid, I have a lot of methanol in my blood. I suspect they're not coming in like that. They're coming in with pHs of 7 or whatever, and so the question is, how do you prevent More formate formation and how do you enhance, how do you improve their physiologic status? So I think looking at formate metabolism or elimination is the interesting part. What would you recommend? That's a good question. I'll put it out there to the listeners. How else would you get rid of formic acid?
0: Well, can you dialyze it?
4: You can dialyze it.
0: And we do have to mention that. I know you're going to mention some other stuff, but, but we do have to, cause just because for general things. So the treatment, if you can't breathe it off, is to dialyze it, right?
4: Right.
2: Okay. And this is what they've been dealing with in Libya right now, is that they, have had, they had a limited supply of 4MP that they brought in to help block people for a limited amount of time
0: while they were waiting to get people dialyzed. Uh, yes, um, and it looks like 4MP was donated by the Norwegian NBC Center Oslo University Hospitals. Good for you. The European producer. I love it. All these people get credit in the press releases and the Scandinavian distributor SOBI. Why aren't we sending from Episol? We could be in this list.
1: Well, one of the big reasons is Dr. Knut Erik Hovda was the, one of the main authors on the Norway outbreak back in 2005. So he was very closely involved in the outbreak of moonshine exposure. Back then, for a few hundred people. So I think they're probably very prepared to handle this kind of thing and just aware of what needs to happen. And he was really able to rally support behind helping another country out along with Doctors
0: Without Borders. Okay, so they're exhausting their supply of 4MP and they're getting it sent around the seas. Listeners at home, if you have a box in the cabinet, just send it care of poison Libyans to Libya. And then, which well, I think
4: the start? Norwegians are just nicer than the US as well, right?
0: That might be true. I mean... The opinions expressed on ToxTalk are not those of the institution of the University of Massachusetts, the uh, medical center here, or the other participants involved.
4: Or it's the my, National Institutes of Health, probably. But right, it's, the, it's not the International Institutes of Health. It's the National Institutes of Health. You can tell I have a little bit of a passion about this.
0: So, well, and we should say also that, that, that Dr. Bird is heavily involved with Evaluating poisoning effects of organophosphates, which tragically are often more of an international than a national scourge. And so if you look at the funding levels for various things and treatments, you sometimes see that as a country, we tend to emphasize exposures that occur in our country, not to get off track.
4: Yeah, that was a more politically correct way of saying what I was trying to. That's right. You can send hate mail, too. Okay.
0: So wait, so, so they got overwhelmed, they, they're, 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 people are sending them from epizol, and then, and then they have to dialyze all these people.
2: Right. And so obviously there are limited, there's limited accessibility to dialysis. There sounds like, I think, two main hospitals in Tripoli that people are getting dialyzed at, but people are being given from epizol in the interim, and a significant amount of the deaths that they're, that they're encountering are folks who have been given 4MP but are still waiting to get dialyzed, and they're not getting dialyzed in time.
4: Is uh, methanol or formate effectively eliminated with peritoneal dialysis?
0: I have to say that the answer is, is yes. I mean, for, for, like, as long as it crosses membranes, and it, honestly, if you're, if you're breathing it off, we know it crosses membranes, then it should... It was, that's
3: how it was done back in the day.
0: Yeah. Like
3: in the 50s and 60s, I've read case reports of even ethanol being treated with peritoneal dialysis, which sounds crazy, but there's, there's pediatric ethanol... Intoxications with levels in the seven hundreds or eight hundreds that were treated with peritoneal dialysis.
2: And it makes sense. It's just that that I guess now that we have hemodialysis, hemodialysis, it's able to be done quicker and pull off a lot more without having to
1: quicker and a lot more. Or do we just do it because we do it?
0: No, it's I'd quicker. Wonder. It's, it's got to be quicker. People, no, because yeah. cause if you think about it, cycle um, so, and, and peritoneal dialysis, and I've actually, I, I think that if I was ever like a cowboy in the middle of nowhere and I had access to nothing, I would consider peritoneal dialysis because I've read case reports of people dying from other, other metabolic disturbances without access to hemodialysis. And I really wonder, you know, as an emergency physician, I'm never going to dialyze somebody, but I could totally, essentially do a paracentesis uh, reverse, stick a needle in. You introduce fluid into the the cavity, and the whole point of peritoneal dialysis is the fluid in the cavity exchanges with the blood supply around it, and so it absorbs whatever toxin you're trying to get rid of. And then, of course, with peritoneal dialysis, you do at some point have to remove the dialysate to remove the toxin and then sort of wash, rinse, repeat. I am not recommending that as standard medical treatment, but there's a certain simplicity that's attractive in that. But because it's a passive process, because it doesn't involve active pumping of fluids and um, gradients, it is not going to be as rapid as hemodialysis.
4: That's right. I said that as a little bit of a rhetorical question because clearly it will work. I don't know what the data is. There's probably some published. But in Libya, I mean, I don't know how many dialysis machines they have in Tripoli. It's probably not 100. So maybe you do what you can with the hemodialysis machines and you do peritoneal dialysis on the other patients.
0: And then you deal with the septic peritoneal infections later.
4: Well, but when you have 400 poison patients, sometimes you have to do what you can. So I think think peritoneal dialysis is an interesting alternative here. Especially
1: when you look at the morbidity and mortality of these toxic alcohol ingestions. If untreated, one-third of them will die. And of the survivor, survivors um, for methanol poisoning, one-third of them will have serious visual disturbances or blindness. So really serious and significant morbidity and mortality. So like a lot of things in medicine, do something. Think about what you can do and do
0: something. Absolutely. And then, um, so it's not just from that's being sent. Also, the other treatment, because they develop severe lactic acidosis, is um, bicarb. So oftentimes these patients are started on sodium bicarb. And then I think you were getting at some other additional treatments.
4: I was. So it strikes me that a great opportunity that would potentially obviate the need for dialysis or as much dialysis is a means to get rid of formate. And we know that there are biological systems that do that, namely formate dehydrogenase. So why not develop the enzyme to metabolize formic acid, formate, and then getting rid of the problem. Instead of putting a Band-Aid on the problem with bicarb, get rid of the problem. That is, get rid of the formic acid. So you still do things like giving folinic acid and thiamine and so forth. So that has been done in the last maybe six or seven years. Some work has been published in India primarily looking at bacterial formate dehydrogenase from E. coli and it's made in lots of organisms have this, but it's been cloned in E. coli and giving it to rats who are methanol poisoned. And their biochemical response is pretty impressive. Formic acid concentrations decrease very rapidly, pH increases. I haven't seen kind of outcome data. I haven't seen visual acuity testing on the rats, but I suspect that the outcomes the physiological clinical outcomes are probably good as well so the question is what can we do to get some e coli formate dehydrogenase to libya does and, fedex do that
1: are there human trials yet probably not yet there aren't it'd be good for a, an orphan drug pathway though if there's a promise there you're certainly not going to get it a large enough number to make it a a lucrative drug to develop.
4: That's right. I think the problem is, one, right now I think it's been cloned in E. coli, and so there's going to be some concerns about antigenicity and immunologic reactions to it. But the nice thing, unlike some other enzymes, for instance, for pesticides, that you only have one substrate. The substrate is formic acid. You don't need the enzyme to also cleave. Formic acid with a methyl group somewhere else or formic acid with a nitrogen somewhere else. You just need it to hydrolyze formic acid. So there shouldn't be any need to engineer the enzyme to have a lower Km or higher Kcat. So Km and Kcat are the kinetic parameters about how well an enzyme binds its substrate and how fast it catalyzes the hydrolysis of the substrate.
0: For example, Mark and I have a very high Km because we're such a close fellowship.
4: Okay. You lost me there.
0: We bind with high FNA. <laughs> okay. All right. So as Steve
2: mentioned, some of the other things that are being sent over are folinic acid, which is used uh, downstream to help the body eliminate the formic acid. Because as we mentioned earlier, the, uh, the body's supply of folate gets depleted very rapidly. Because there is just isn't uh, very much of it, especially when it gets uh, overwhelmed by things like methanol.
0: Right. So, do you think this is going to be the last methanol outbreak that we ever see? No, not by a long shot. There was even, there was a, a relatively recent
2: outbreak of this in Michigan, in a jail in Michigan. Um, so, it happens in first world countries. It happens in second and third world countries. It's going to continue to happen around the world uh, because. People like to drink alcohol, people like to buy alcohol, whether it's legal denatured alcohol or
4: legal ethanol. Uh, And uh, I think people are going to get their hands on it any
2: way they can. Yeah,
4: I think another reason for that is, and maybe you discussed this before I came into the room, is the toxicity of methanol. For a 10 kilogram child, a potentially lethal dose is 1 mL. So it doesn't take much. In an adult, lethal dose, 10 to 15 mLs. So it takes such little amount of 100% methanol to cause such toxicity that you're able to see these large mass poisonings with a relatively small amount of it.
0: So in summary, this first step is suspecting a toxic alcohol exposure test by checking the osms and seeing if there's a gap. Have a low threshold for treating with metazole and then contact your global-friendly Medical toxicologist and uh, renal doc about dialysis. Well, I want to thank you all for joining me today and talking about the, the Libyans and talking about the, this outbreak. Um, I think it's going to continue to evolve in the news, and I think that this provides some basis for people when they're seeing some of these news reports to try to understand exactly what's going on and what's happening. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Thanks.
4: Thanks. My pleasure.
0: And that's another segment of Talkstop. And that's it for another episode of Talks Talk. I want to thank you for joining me on this episode. Please check out our website. That's talkstalk.org, T-O-X-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. Also, you can uh, get in touch with us via our Twitter feed at Talks Talk, as well as our Facebook page. Anyone with any show suggestions or things they'd like to hear discussed on the show, feel free to drop us a line. Additionally, we've started a Flickr group where you can submit and see tox related photos. These can be handy. A lot of us have taken these during our practice or are putting together a talk and need some good, high-quality photos for that. So feel free to check out that Flickr group. That's the Toxicology Flickr group. You can get a link to that on our website. Tox Talk is a production of the Division of Toxicology and the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Massachusetts School of Medicine. I'm Matt Zuckerman, signing off.